Listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. Sponsored by Greenberg Traurig, LLP. is a date that will forever be etched in our memory. For many, it was also a call to action. On that day, careers and lives were redirected out of a desire to respond and support our country. And this was certainly the case with Ben Rhodes. How an aspiring writer with a degree from Rice University and an MFA from NYU became the Deputy National Security Advisor is a fascinating story told well in Ben's recently published bestseller, The World As It Is. More than a personal memoir, this book describes the key challenges and successes faced by the Obama administration by one of the few individuals who was at the president's side for his entire term. It is not a chronological study of eight years. Rather, it pulls back the curtain, giving the reader a keen appreciation of how President Obama saw the world, worked with his staff, and executed his policy. Welcome to GIQ. Great to be with you, Jim. Hey, wonderful. I saw today that your book is now number six in the New York Times bestseller list. You know, uh, nothing I could have predicted uh, 15 years ago. Um, I wouldn't have thought I'd work in the White House and wouldn't think I'd be in the New York Times bestseller list, but life has interesting turns. When doing some research, I saw some articles that were less than flattering about your yeah. rapid rise, yes. noting your lack of foreign policy experience. Yeah. That's not fair, because I know the Wilson Center, yeah. and also have certainly followed Lee Hamilton. Tell us a little bit about your first experience working for the Wilson Center and in Lee Hamilton. It's a great question, and i got to tell you that when some of those unflattering pieces appeared, my wife was the one who was the most incensed because I went to work for Lee Hamilton in 2002. And for those who don't know him, if you were to design in a laboratory a statesman and a member of Congress, it would be Lee Hamilton. He worked for 34 years in Congress, chaired the Foreign Affairs Committee, the Intelligence Committee. And when I went to work for him, he was the president of the Wilson Center. And he has a, a reservoir of knowledge about American foreign policy over the last several decades that is really unparalleled. And he has kind of an old school pragmatism you know, about finding the right solutions, divorced from ideology, totally bipartisan. I went to work for him as a speechwriter and kind of multi-purpose aide, but he got appointed to be co-chair of the 9-11 Commission, which was interesting because my own journey, as you cite, was altered by 9-11. That's why I went into foreign policy. And so for two years, I got to work by his side as we looked at every aspect of those attacks and our response, from our foreign policy to our aviation security to our intelligence community, and ultimately prepared a package of recommendations, many of which became law, to reform our national security institutions. And then, lo and behold, he got appointed co-chair with James Baker of the Iraq Study Group to spend a year and a half looking at that huge event in our national history. So I had this unique experience for five years working for Hamilton at really digging into the two seismic events of the early 21st century, the the 9-11 attacks and the war in Iraq. And that's what set me up to go to work for Barack Obama. Tell me about the first time you met President Obama, candidate Obama. Yeah. <laughs> so I described in the book, I had felt compelled to get into politics because I saw the limits of what you could do outside of politics. And I wanted to work for Obama. And so I started to essentially volunteer on his campaign, writing speeches and floor statements. But you never really know if what you're doing is reaching the candidate. And I got invited to a debate preparation session and I just I remember walking into the room and being terrified 
because here are all these big advisors and David Axelrod and Susan Rice, and there's Barack Obama at the head of the table. And he was debating whether or not to vote for a certain bill funding the Iraq war. And he called on me because he has a habit of calling on everybody in the room. And I remember I was so nervous to speak that I knew I couldn't speak in paragraphs. So I just posed a series of questions to him about whether this approach was in line with his own policies and suggesting that if it wasn't, you know, why would he vote for it despite political calculation? And ultimately, I didn't realize, but you know, that matched kind of his kind of pragmatic, common sense view of how you approach problems. Not that dissimilar from Lee Hamilton in an interesting way, and was ultimately hired on the campaign. You know, we have just a little bit of time, and I, I do want to stress to our listeners that your book is so well organized into some of the key issues that was faced by the administration. But I just recently read General Mike Hayden's book, mm -hmm. and he said that, in his view, perhaps the United States focused too much on cybersecurity and hacking and not enough on information. And I wonder what you think about that when you're looking at what happened with the Russians, not just in 2016, yeah. but even yeah. before. I, I think that is absolutely right. And I describe in the book that after the annexation of Crimea, when Russia went into eastern Ukraine, you know, they had really believed that we were behind the overthrow of the government in Ukraine that, that was aligned with them, President Yanukovych. Suddenly all bets were off. And I saw, because I was responsible for communications, the development of these new tools thousands of social media bots flooding European and American kind of news feeds with fake news, with false information, a willingness to tell lies, a willingness to hack information and release it as part of a broader information warfare strategy. And what was chilling to come to grips with over the course of 2016 is that the same tools that they developed in Ukraine, they basically just brought into the United States in our election. And the hacking and releasing of emails was only one small piece of that information warfare. And I feel like we, the Obama administration, focused too much on the hacking and the cybersecurity element in our response because that's what governments are wired to do. You know, we know how to deal with cybersecurity. We don't really know how to deal with information war. We don't have tools to do that. We can't go into your Facebook feed and say, this is fake news. And so, when I look back on our response, I think that's where it fell short. In hindsight, and that's always 2020, yeah. do you think that the president should have been more outspoken or the fact, and this is one of the things that Clapper said, he said when he came out with the report, it happened to be the same day that the excess Hollywood tape came out. Yeah, yeah. But do you think that there should have been more of an effort? Yeah, well, I never, I'll never forget that the day that statement came out from the U.S. government saying that Russia was responsible for meddling in our election, we thought it'd be a bombshell. And I remember walking out of the White House and hearing the gate clang behind me and looking at my Blackberry and seeing the reports of the Access Hollywood tape. And it kind of did subsume it. I, in hindsight, again, what I look back on is that statement issued by our intelligence community didn't say anything about the information operation. It said something about the hacking. And that's in part because that's how our government chose to deal with the issue. You know, the, the people who crafted that statement were people who focused on cybersecurity and hacking. And you and your team were not in those discussions. We weren't, and I, I, I stress I'm not saying that to, you know, if only I was there, everything would have been great. But it's more an indication of the way in which the U.S. government was designed. The default was they hacked stuff and released it, so we're going to get the cybersecurity people together to come up with a response. And the communications people, not just me, but anybody who worked in communications, including a World Affairs Council alumni, Ned Price, um, weren't in those meetings because 
we just weren't wired to deal with information as a national security threat in the same way we dealt with hacking. You know, in the second term, you were looking for something new to do, and President Obama certainly had a lot of confidence in you and, and gave you a, a rather loose rein, didn't he? Yes. Especially going off the coast of Florida. Yes. Well, you know, it's interesting. When you get elected to a second term, there's kind of a musical chairs where people go on to jobs. From the White House, they usually go to the State Department or the United Nations. But he wanted to keep me in the White House. But he said, look, pick a project that you want to do. And I picked Cuba because I knew he wanted to change policy on Cuba. But I also know the way U.S. government works is if somebody doesn't volunteer to take on something like that that's not kind of in the headlines and coming at you, it doesn't get done. I ended up having you know, 20 meetings in secret with the Cuban government over the course of many months to just see how far we could get. And we got much further than I anticipated. It was me and, and Alejandro Castro, who was Raul Castro's son, in making an agreement to essentially normalize relations, establish embassies, open up this relationship between the United States and Cuba. To me, it was probably the most rewarding experience I had in government because it was purely affirmative. <laughs> Rarely do you get to do things that aren't just you know responding to crises, but taking an initiative. You know, you gave your heart and soul in this job for a long time, and it's got to be tough to see so much of what you worked on, for lack of a better word, being taken apart, unraveled. How do you face that? You now have a new job. Yeah. Tell us about that. I'm still helping out President Obama a bit. I basically travel with him when he goes internationally and meet with farm leaders, and I'm writing more. I'm you're working with him on his book? Aren't you? Not really. He's writing it himself. I mean, I was working on this book. So I'm doing a mix of things. But I have to say, you know, I still advise some Democrats. We have an organization called National Security Action that does that function. But the most difficult thing, people usually assume that I must be upset about, you know, this policy or that, the Iran deal or Paris Climate Accords. But what's disappointing to me is a manner of carrying the United States around the world, <laughs> the manner of leadership. That's what I see being unraveled. Not just our approach, but frankly, the approach that has generally governed U.S. foreign policy for 70 years. When I see a G7 summit where we are attacking our closest allies, Canada, Germany, and others, these are the people we used to, to meet with to collaborate on strategy, not to be confrontational. I see a disregard for democracy and human rights in our foreign policy. I see a kind of scorn for global opinion. and. That's the hard thing, is to see something that you know, we all did our little part to carry a legacy forward kind of unraveled. The only antidote I can find to that, and the hope that I find at the end of the book, is that more people in this country and around the world reject that brand of politics than embrace it. And that you know, the real legacy of a president isn't just the policies that they do, but what are the people that they might have inspired you. And so my hope is that in future elections and future administrations, that the approach to the world that Barack Obama got right, and he didn't get everything right, but the broad approach is one that we return to. Tell us more before we leave you about the national security action. You're doing that with uh, Jake Sullivan. You know, Jake would be national security advisor if Hillary had won the election. What we decided to do was organize basically the whole network of Democratic national security experts, former officials, former congressional staff, members of Congress, and others, to try to formulate it's not a think tank, but to take the best arguments and ideas on the progressive side of the spectrum and use them, activate them in the political debate. Because what I found in the past is sometimes good thinking on foreign policy that rests in think tanks and world affairs councils is absent in the debates in Congress and in the public domain. 
And we wanted to kind of serve as a bridge so that you know, the good ideas uh, that we have about what we should be doing in the world and the criticisms that we have about what Trump is doing in the world can be activated in the political and public debate. And so we're doing that in context of you know, the day-to-day world that we live in and, and the next couple of elections. And you're putting out releases and papers. The Democratic Party, to, to be self-reflective here, sometimes shies away from national security debates. And we're also trying to, to push other voices forward. You know, if there are members of Congress that they want to take on this mantle, if there are people potentially running for office who want to take on this mantle, we want to be able to provide them with a network of advisors who can give them greater confidence in doing that. You'll be pleased to know that there are a lot of Rice alumni who are out <laughs> there wanting to meet you along with the World Affairs Council members. You've been listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, and we've been with Ben Rhodes. His book, The World As It Is, is number six on the New York Times bestseller list. Ben, continued good luck with us. Thanks so much. Good to be with you. Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org. Global IQ Minute is sponsored by Greenberg Traurig LLP, a global firm with 2,000 attorneys in 38 offices across the globe. Visit the firm at gtlaw.com.